0: No,
1: very good welcome to the United States of the Cathedral for this event. My name is Dave Arson, I'm the Dean of the Cathedral here. Um, and it's my pleasure to be here with one of our more popular bishops. As you can tell by the numbers, I'm we must stop having popular bishops. Um, and Steve's going to talk to us about the new book that he's just published, Walking Backwards to Christmas, uh, which basically you'll have a certain or you'll recognise where the title comes from. Um, we know the story only too well in terms of nativity plays and other things. But in this book, Stephen tells us something more about it in an offbeat, off kind of way, which I found particularly refreshing, encouraging and thought-provoking when I read it through. People uh, we then often hear from. And this mixture of different voices gives a nuanced approach to what the Christmas story is all about. Stephen's been visual children since 2010. He's written widely on evangelism, discipleship, and spirituality, including books on how to pray (coughs) and do nothing to change your life. Wait for that one. (laughs) Advent is a time to stop and reflect as the days grow darker. So we think about the light of Christ coming to us. And Stephen's book is an opportunity to prepare for Christmas in a new and different kind of way. Stephen will speak to us for about forty minutes. And then we'll have some questions and answers. And then, unless you really don't want to, the opportunity to buy this book <laughs> at yeah. the end, please welcome
2: Steve Coff? thank you very much. Brothers uh, and sisters, how nice to see you. Uh, thank you for uh, giving up the lunchtime uh, uh, in this way. And uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the book I've written and the ideas behind it. Uh, and perhaps it's best to start with the title and the front cover. I don't know whether, uh, whether you've seen the book. Um, uh, I'm hoping at least some of you have, and I'll hold it up. Because the picture on the front cover is, for me, really rather important. And I'd like to start talking about the book by talking about the picture. Uh, and if you haven't yet seen a copy of the book, at the very least, even if you don't buy one, you can look at one afterwards, <laughs> have, a, have a little look at the picture, or you can even Google it. Uh, it's, it's by a man uh, named Albert Herbert, and it's called, uh, the painting, The Nativity and the Burning Bush. And for some years, uh, I've been thinking about writing a book about Christmas, the Christmas story, Uh, but I didn't really know where to begin. After all, how do you retell the one story that everybody knows? Uh, Levels of biblical literacy in our country are probably at an all-time low. Uh, Many clergy will report that you can't go into a school nowadays and uh, say to the children, well, you know that story, the Good Samaritan, or you know that story, the prodigal son. Chances are, children growing up will not know the Samaritan. They will not know the prodigal son. Uh, you can't even go into a school and say, let us pray and expect people to know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that level of knowledge of the Christian tradition uh, is missing in our culture. However, the one bit of the story everybody does know, or as I want to go on to explain, the one bit of the story everybody thinks they know, uh, is the Christmas story. Uh, And we know it from nativity plays, and we know it from Christmas carols. Uh, That's the reason many clergy at Christmas like to, uh, you know, like to kind of drop some questions into their sermons, Uh, for instance, uh, how many wise men were there? <laughs> to which the answer is, we don't know. No, we've got some biblically literate people in today. The answer is we don't know. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere how many wise men there are. Uh, but because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh, the tradition has filled in the missing details and we assume that it wasn't seven people bringing three gifts between them, or one person (laughs) bringing three gifts. It was three people bringing three gifts. And so we we learn the story in a certain way, but we don't learn it from the scripture and the tradition. We learn it from carols and nativity plays. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but there is a certain story inside us, the Christmas story, and we know it really, really well. So the challenge that was kind of buzzing around in my head for several years is, so how do you get a new angle on the story that everybody knows so well? And I didn't seem to have any ideas about how to begin. Until, about 18 months, two years ago, I went to a lecture by Richard Harris, at one-time Bishop of Oxford, on contemporary artists who were drawing on the Christian tradition, and he introduced me to this man, Albert Herbert, who until that point I was only very vaguely aware of. Now, Albert Herbert uh, was the principal of St. Martin's School of Art in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s. And if you know St. Martin's School of Art, one of the foremost art schools in the country, or possibly in the world, and certainly in that period, intellectually, it was at the centre of the artistic movement known as abstract expressionism. Uh, think of Barnett Newman, Franz Klein, Mark Rothko, uh, those painters whose paintings were large slabs of colour, or, or another famous person, Jackson Pollock, who famously did all those drip paintings. That was the artistic movement, and intellectually, Sir Martin's School of Art was at the centre of it, Albert Herbert was the principal of Sir Martin's, and therefore he was a leading figure and a leading voice in that artistic movement. Only he had a dark secret or should I perhaps say more accurately, he had two dark secrets. Uh, The first dark secret was that he had been received into the Roman Catholic Church and was attending Mass every week. Uh, And for somebody at that point in English history, in that bit of the post-war intellectual movement, uh, this was not something you admitted to. So that was the first thing, he had been received into the Catholic Church. But the second, the even darker secret, was that he stopped believing in abstract expressionism as a as a artistic <coughs> movement. Well maybe stopped believing in it, putting it in too strongly. He, he still kind of understood it. He still was okay that other people were drawing from it, but he himself was no longer motivated by it at a personal level. And what was happening was that in the evenings back home, or sometimes down in the basement of St. Martin's, he was painting horror, horrors, figurative paintings. Uh, not only was he doing figurative paintings, he was doing figurative paintings of biblical scenes and drawing on the faith that he was now discovering. And his paintings, to my mind, are sublimely beautiful. They have a childlike quality to them. I guess he was painting at quite a similar time uh, to, if, if you're aware of his work, a man like Alfred Wallace, uh, who was the, the, the painter that was sort of discovered in Survives, just a, just a fisherman who painted these very, very primitive seascapes. Uh, look look, look superficially like a child's painting. Uh, This this was the form of painting that Albert Herbert um, was discovering. And uh, if you you want to discover these paintings, well, put put his name into into a search engine, you'll get lots of wonderful images. (laughs) Anyway, at this lecture, uh, Richard Harris showed the painting, which is now on the front cover of the book, The Nativity and the Burning Bush. And In a flash, I suddenly realized I knew how I could tell the story that everybody knows. And I don't quite know where the idea came from. but it came from the painting, but I was seeing the painting in a very particular way. Again, I'll I'll hold it up. I know you probably can't see it, but I'll just hold it up. Um, In the painting, in the center, is the figure of Mary, and Mary is holding out the Christ child for people to see, Uh, to the left, uh, uh, sorry, to the right as you look at it, is a burning bush, and to the left is a kneeling figure. Now we're not told who the kneeling figure is, but when I looked at the painting, I found myself instantly reading the painting from left to right, Uh, in the way that you might read a page on a book. And it seemed to be moving from left to right from the kneeling figure to the Christ child to Mary to the burning bush and as I saw the painting in this way I thought well wouldn't it would be interesting to tell the Christmas story backwards uh, moving through the drama I also uh, thought this might be interesting because I've become fascinated by other narrative forms which muck about with chronology. Um, films, I guess, more than novels, though of course many novels do this as well. But but famously, film directors like Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan have recently, in many of their films, chopped around the chronology of a story to help you. Uh, see the story differently. Uh, Whereas most stories are usually told forwards in a linear way for obvious reasons, uh, when you start telling a story backwards, uh, the conclusion of the story changes from that which happened at the so-called end to the motivations which inspired people to act in the first place. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But what I liked about the painting was not only did it seem to have this backwards (coughs) movement from the figure on the left, whoever he is, to the burning bush on the right, it was also about characters in the story. So who is the person on the left? Uh, The painting is called The Nativity of the Burning Bush, so the person, I suppose, could be Moses. Or... It could be, kneeling down before the Christ child, it could be one of the Magi, or it could be a shepherd, or it could be Simeon, it could be Joseph, or it could be you, um, or it could be me. There's a kind of everyman quality about this kneeling figure before the Christ child. And then I like the way that Mary is holding up the Christ child for people to behold him. And I thought, yes, that's what I would like to do in this book. I would like to hold up the Christ child and hold up this story for people to see it as if for the first time. And then of course centrally, there is the figure of Mary herself, who obviously is so central to the biblical narrative. And then strangely on the right, you've got the burning bush. Now, I don't know about you, but um, if you go to church over the next couple of weeks and see a crib scene, uh, you'll probably see Mary, you'll probably see Joseph, you'll probably see angels and shepherds and oxes and ass and all the rest of it, but it's very, very unlikely that you'll see Moses and the burning bush. Uh, They don't usually make an appearance in the nativity plays and the crib scene. Uh, but here in this painting is this burning bush. Now, for Western art, uh, this is almost unparalleled. Though interestingly, in Eastern art, it's reasonably common. Well, maybe not common, uh, but in many icons of the Nativity, uh, sometimes Moses and the burning bush. Are And the reason Moses and the burning bush appear is because, if you know the story of Moses and the burning bush uh, in the third chapter of the book of Exodus, when Moses beholds the burning bush, uh, the name of God is revealed to him. Uh, The name of God, and also the purpose of God. So it's a story that both the Jewish and the Christian traditions have gone back to many, many times. So there is a sense in which the iconographers of the Eastern Church saw in the story of Moses and the burning bush a kind of prefiguring of the Annunciation to Mary. So whereas in the story of the burning bush the name and purpose of God is revealed to Moses, in the incarnation and in Mary, um, God's very self is revealed. Uh, the burning bush appears to Moses as a fire which burns brightly but does not consume. And so it is uh, in the story of the Annunciation. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, but the burning fire of the Holy Spirit does not consume Mary. Uh, rather, it illuminates her, and the Christ child is born within her. So, a, a, a long way of introducing you to the book, but the idea for the book came at me like that. Um, I saw the painting, raised the painting as it were backwards, and then just thought to myself, well, that would be quite interesting. Tell the story backwards. And then, when you've decided to tell a story backwards, you're faced with all sorts of other, for me anyway, interesting questions about what is the end of a story and what is the beginning. So, where does uh, the story of the birth of Christ begin, and where does the story of the birth of Christ end? Well, we're probably familiar with the twelve days of Christmas. Um, and the 12 days of Christmas obviously start on the 25th of December and go on till the 6th of January. The 6th of January is the feast of the Epiphany uh, when uh, the, the wise men come to the Christ child. So that's one of the possible ending points for the Christmas story. But there are some brave churches and brave individuals who keep their Christmas trees and their cribs up, not just till twelfth night, but all the way to the 2nd of February. Now the 2nd of February, (coughs) as some of you may know, is the Feast of Candlemas. That's the story in the biblical narrative where Mary and Joseph present the Christ child in the temple, and Simeon, the old man Simeon, uh, who, who has been told that he will see the Messiah before he dies, he proclaims that this child is the light, not just of Israel, but the light of the whole world. So the traditional end point for the Christmas season is actually the 2nd of February. So if you want to leave your Christmas decorations up a bit longer than usual, it's quite okay to. So I decided that that would be my beginning. uh, That this moment, when the Christ child is proclaimed as light of all the world, That would be the place for the story to begin. And then, because I had this painting in front of me, with the burning bush in it, I did somehow want to get back to Moses, uh, which presented itself as a bit of an interesting challenge. Uh, So I went backwards through the story, from Simeon and Anna, uh, through... You know, the wise men, the shepherds, King Herod, all the way back through the story to the Annunciation itself. Uh, and then I wanted to step back further uh, into the Old Testament. And by now, as I started to plan and write the book, I became very interested in seeing the story in reverse as a story from the light to the darkness. Uh, of course, normally the Advent story we see the other way around, and of course that is the way to understand it. But the hope of the book is that by travelling through the story backwards and going deeply into the darkness before Christ, we might learn to appreciate the light a little more. So it was quite an easy step to get back to my time. Uh, you'll you'll be aware that at Christmas, some of the great readings that we have alongside the nativity narrative itself are readings from the prophet Isaiah. So the great prophecies such as, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, or uh, the virgin is with child, and she will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. Uh, for unto us a child is born, and his name will be wonderful, mighty counsellor, all the rest of it. Uh, There are lots of prophecies in Isaiah which point uh, towards the birth of Christ. So it was quite an easy step to get from Mary to Isaiah. It was, I have to admit, a bigger step uh, to get back to Moses. Uh, But I started to make a theme of the book, the idea of the fire which burns brightly but doesn't consume the fire that illuminates. And therefore the book begins with Anna in the temple beholding the radiant light that the Christ child who proclaims as light of all the world. And the book ends with Moses sitting in the darkness having encountered the name and the purpose of God in a burning bush. Now, what I found helpful for myself in writing the book this way is what it taught me about motivation. As I said a moment or two ago, uh, most narratives begin with motivation and circumstance. And through a combination of motivation and circumstance, a narrative and a drama unfolds which leads to a conclusion. The interesting thing about telling a story backwards, especially one that is known so well, is that you start with the conclusion, you wind your way back through a circumstance to motivation. And therefore the climax of the book becomes, why people did the things they did. Why people said the things they said. Why they didn't do the things they didn't do. That became the most interesting bit of the story. And for that purpose, um, and I also got this idea that the story should be told in a series of first-person monologues. Uh, So what happens in the book is each of the chapters is one person telling their bit of the story. Uh, So they, as it were, speak to us As if the drama has just unfolded. So the book opens with Anna speaking to us, um, having just beheld Christ in the temple. And
0: then we go backwards through the story. Because I was interested in people's
2: motivations as being, as it were, the climax of this backwards way of telling the story, it, it felt to me to be quite important not to get to Mary too quickly. Uh, because she's clearly such a central person in the story. Uh, This presented a bit of a problem, because I obviously needed to tell the story of the birth itself, but I didn't want to tell the story of the birth itself through the eyes of Mary, because I was much more interested in exploring why did she say yes to God? I mean, it's a popular, I think there's one or two clergy here, but it's a popular popular kind of sermon thing, uh, which you could put this way, how many people said no before Mary said yes? (laughs) No, obviously, we we can't know the answer to that. The answer might be no. But it might not. Um, It it seems to me to be important. Um... That Mary's yes was was a free and unequivocal yes. Um, that she was not coerced in any way. It, it seems important to me that when Mary says, "Let what you have said be done in me," that Mary was in that moment perfectly aligning her will to the will of God. After all, isn't that the aim of the Christian life? Isn't that? Isn't that actually the purpose of prayer? Uh, prayer is not, as you'd be forgiven for thinking, listening to Christians praying, uh, prayer is not, do you know, if we could just get enough signatures on the prayer petition, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what, I think we might change God's mind on this one. <laughs> uh, No, prayer is not me trying to change God's mind, but allowing my mind to be changed by God, to allow my purpose to be aligned to God's purpose. Isn't that what the story of the burning bush is about? Um, I mean, after Moses receives the name of God and catches hold of the purposes of God, Moses then spends the next bit of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4 arguing with God, uh, giving God all sorts of very, very good reasons why God has completely chosen the wrong person. Um, But Mary, in the moment, where she too is invited to be the one through whom God's purposes are made known, she is able to say, let what you have said be done in me. Elizabeth says of Mary, blessed is she who believed that the promises made to her by the Lord would be fulfilled. So, for the purposes of the book, it was really important that we didn't get to memory or the Annunciation, but that presented a bit of a problem how to tell the story of the birth, since one of my hopes for the book was that it would be faithful to the Biblical narrative in the sense that um, yes, I'm imaginatively retelling the story and taking lots of liberties as I do it, but I didn't want to depart from the, from the narrative um, and, and faithfully try to get under the skin of it. So, when Jesus was born, who was present? Well, again, we don't know for sure, but it seems as if the only people present were Mary and Joseph. Now, I'm very interested in telling the Joseph story. Again, Joseph's motivations are interesting, aren't they? Um, I mean, Joseph's stuck by me. Um, he stuck by Mary where common sense and, and the plain facts of what he could see before him suggested he was a fool to stick by her. But he did. And so I was very interested in why Joseph stuck by her. Um, so i would already kind of used up Joseph, so I couldn't tell the birth through Joseph. I needed to hang on to tell the story of the Annunciation through Mary. So I did take a bit of a poetic liberty with the text, this point, and I make a public apology. Um, if you've been to a nativity play lately, and I'm sure many of you will have been or will be going, um, certainly in children's school nativity plays there's, a, there's an important stock character who doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, uh, but does appear in the nativity play, namely, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, (laughs) the innkeeper's wife. Um, The innkeeper's wife is a key character in the the facility play. Mm. Uh, And so I thought, well, it's a bit of poetic license, but I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe there was another woman there for the birth, an older, experienced woman who would help Mary through labour. And so I borrowed the innkeeper's wife um, as, a, as a narrative device for telling the story of the birth itself. And, and actually that became rather interesting in terms of the writing because this was somebody who you know, was a fairly, fairly cynical, hard bitten person uh, and yet she was the other person and it was through her eyes that we would, we would experience the birth. And then that allowed me to get back to Mary. A few other things which may be worth noting about this uh, extraordinary story. First of all, and again this is an obvious thing to say, but writing the story really brought it home to me. Um, unlike most biblical narratives, women are front and centre. Um, and, and women take on the most significant roles in the story. And, a man, I really enjoyed writing all, all the chapters of the book, of first person monologues, there, you know, I. I really enjoyed writing as the women in the story and trying to understand or at least get a glimpse of how they might have seen things. The other thing that really came home to me was the darkness and complexity of the story. And this is the bit that is usually missed if you learn the story from nativity plays and Christmas carols. Uh, so having started the book uh, with the voice of Anna and then, as it were, moving backwards through the biblical narrative, the very next thing that you get to, after this astonishing declaration that this child is the light of the nations, the next thing you get to is the slaughter of the innocents. Uh, and this is a bit of the biblical narrative that very, very rarely gets mentioned. That There is a day in the calendar where we're supposed to remember the Holy Innocents, but because it's a couple of days after Christmas, and we've all done a lot of church by that point, <laughs> um, we're probably just too busy on other stuff to notice its passing in the calendar. And so the second chapter of the book uh, is is a chapter where, for obvious reasons, I give her the name Rachel. Uh, Rachel cries out for the loss of her child, <clears throat> and looking at the story of one of the mothers of those children who were slaughtered uh, allows me to say, through the character of Rachel, I don't really know whether I like this. I don't even know what I think about this Jesus. Uh, This Jesus has brought trouble to my life. Uh, This Jesus has taken away the life that I had. And it's hard to write that, but I also think very important to write that. Not least because of the very, very uh, contemporary relevance it has. Um, just last week I was reading as I'm sure many of you have read about some of those uh, small Christian communities uh, who are daily under threat from ISIS uh, where children are being told um, convert or die Uh, and these are the realities of our world today and where there is genocide where there is horror where different faith groups are under persecution and that's where the birth of Christ first led it first led uh, to the horrors of genocide so it felt important to tell that bit of the story in in all its darkness but of course there are other dark and difficult bits of the story Uh, There's the character of King um, Herod trying to understand uh, his motivations and his decisions. And then there is the indecision of so many others. So, (coughs) could I finish uh, by, and hopefully there might be some questions that some of you have, uh, but can I finish by reading you a couple of short passages from the book? And as I say, the women are front and centre in the story, but perhaps it would be better if I read it to you from one of the men. And the other thing that I really liked about writing the book as first person narratives is that you can get inside the humanity of the story. Uh, and realised that these people who were caught up in this drama were real people like you and me, and uh, and therefore, almost to my surprise, as I wrote the theme, I suddenly found myself thinking about other bits of the story that I'd never thought of before, and one of the bits that really delighted me was the was really reflecting on Joseph falling in love with Mary. Uh, and really asking myself the question, why did he stick by her? I mean, he had a dream. And I don't know who believes in dreams. You know, have got to take a lot of courage to put your faith in a dream. So what else was there that was happening inside Joseph to enable him to stick by Mary? And it seems to me that the obvious answer was probably the most interesting one. That he loved her. That he loved her. and so I found it able to write about um, an older man uh, falling in love with a younger woman. And uh, this is a little bit from from that part of the story. So this is Joseph speaking to us
1: after
2: so many miles. Of travelling in the same direction. Meeting her, Mary, was like a turning in the road, a new possibility. It was arranged by our families, and none the worse for that, and the arrangements were made quickly so that we could get on with our life. I had many dreams, but I'd stopped dreaming of this, and her presence filled me with delight. She was a sudden burst of springtime joy in what felt like the long, meandering decline of autumn. She was spring rains on thirsty ground, and her exuberance replenished the hidden springs of my own dreaming, and flooded me. Her presence, and what it promised, irritated me. There is no other way of putting it. Was it love? I don't know, not yet. Love isn't a feeling. Love isn't just desire, though, how I desired her. Love is the patient accumulation of shared memories, the joining together of two lifetimes into one. The weaving of separate stories into this story. Love begins to grow when falling in love is left behind. It takes time. It matures slowly in the fertile ground of commitment, of determined choosing. This person and not another. This path and not that. Love isn't what men think it is. They mistake falling in love for being in love. They forget that the finest wines take many years to settle. They allow their eyes to rove and lose the greatest gift of all, a lifetime shared to know and to be known. That was what opened up for me when Mary became my intended. Hope blossomed. Love became a possibility. Something to be started. So that's Joseph reflecting on falling in love with Mary. And I hope throughout the book um, that human side of the story uh, comes through. And my hope for the book, well obviously other people will read it, um, uh, but I also hope that uh, people will use the book um, as a spring to also thinking imaginatively about the story themselves. And I've been encouraged to learn quite a number of uh, churches uh, have set up little reading groups. It, it's not a study book, so um, it's not a book to, to sit and read like you read a novel. Um, but uh, I do know the groups of people have met having read it and then, as it were, imagined themselves into the story and seeing how their lives resonate with the experience, the motivations of some of the characters in the story. But the book ends with a poem, uh, and it's a poem that kind of tries to sum up uh, some of the central ideas of what has gone before. So I'll finish with the poem. There is only one thing that prevents the gentle movement, heaven into earth. Not the fear which godly freezing brings, nor cold presumption God could never speak, nor empty tomb, nor barren heart, nor eyes searching, voices how long blaze, nor the silence where there should be praise, nor the bitter taste of human failing, but the lack of trust that what was promised might, in human flesh, be born, achieved. How happy she, who for us all believed, strength of God, in human weakness blending. Tenderly, the humble servant lifted from the feeble cry, the fatal lending.
1: In say Isaiah, did you find it more difficult to deal with the empty ones or the full ones in terms of what material you
2: Ah, uh, yes. I, I think the full ones were harder. Isaiah was hardest of all because uh, Isaiah is—is is it the longest book in the Bible? I think it might be. It's certainly one of the longest. Um, so, so as soon as you as soon as you write in the voice of Isaiah, you've got to decide what to do. With a, with a huge amount of text, uh, and the Isaiah chapter, as is those, those, I mean, I, I guess some people read it and not necessarily realise, but I reckon about half of the Isaiah chapter is almost verbatim quotations from from the Scripture. Uh, so again, I, I, I actually felt an acknowledgement, so I had to print a, I had to print a little apology because. As biblical scholars will be aware, well most most biblical scholars agree that the, the book of Isaiah, as we read it in the Bible, is actually not written by a single person, but is spread over a vast period of time, and there's as it were more than one Isaiah. And I thought at least in acknowledgement, acknowledgments I able to acknowledge that well, I do know this, and it was taking terrible, <laughs> terrible liberties with the text to put different bits into the mouth of a single person. Uh, but I think it kind of worked. It, it kind of worked. But yes, I think I did feel more constrained by the existence of such a text. And in many ways, there was a there was a greater freedom with the people who we barely know anything about. Um, so, uh, so yes, I, I think that would be I think that would be the answer. Yeah. But I think once you've decided, so once you've given yourself permission, just to just to to speak in the voice of one of the characters, there's a great, great inspiration in
1: that. Can I ask, um, were you conscious, by going back as far as Moses, of allying all the people of the book? Um, Um, Of the book? uh, Allying.
2: Yes, because I've imposed, obviously I've imposed upon it, a single narrative. yeah. So there, so there are, there, so there was, so there are certain ideas which run through the book, particularly the idea of the fire that burns and doesn't consume, um, as a as a as a way of understanding um, the presence of God. Um, and the other idea, which again I noticed as I read it out, pops up in the in the in the Joseph narrative, is the idea of knowing and being known. Um, that, uh, that the, the wonderful thing about what God has done for us in Christ is that we are known. So in Christ, uh, there is nothing that we cannot experience that God, therefore, hasn't experienced, that God knows us. Um, so the fact, well, here's another, here's another certain idea, again, um, to the original one, you know, at his birth Jesus was given two names. Uh, one name is Jesus, which means literally God rescues, God saves. The other name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Um, this, this narrative is much more interested in Emmanuel, as it were, than Jesus. It, it's interested in the idea that God is with us, that he knows us, that he's, he's elected to empty himself in order to know us. Um, And so those ideas then surface in each of the characters.
1: Thank you. You refer to taking liberties with Isaiah, and in doing so, you've obviously written a very profound and compelling book. You talk about the Christmas story, and it seems to me that you're actually talking about two separate stories that of Matthew and that of Luke. And I wonder about whether you whether they have to be allowed their own separate integrity and not (coughs) combined because
2: they're quite different stories, aren't they? Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, if if I was writing a book about, you know, a a textbook about the biblical narratives, almost the first thing you have to say is. um, the Mathean account and the Lucan account are, are entirely separate accounts with different purposes and different ideas, um, but I, I um, that's not what I'm trying to do, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's a deliberate attempt to take the story that everybody knows, which is the conflated story, the story that you, you know, if you go to a nativity play, this is the story that you'll see is to take that story and get underneath it. So, um, of, of course, you're right from a biblical critical point of view, um, but I hope that New Testament scholars will be uh, gentle with me. And, um, <laughs> uh, 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 so, and it's part of that reason the acknowledgements I kind of acknowledge at a couple of points. Because I, I do understand that and get that, but that isn't what this book is trying to do. You know, each book can only do so much, so... Um, uh, I wanted to tell the story as we know it and enable people... So the hope is that take the story as we know it and and experience it as if for the first time. And, and, the, and the telling backwards is the device for enabling that to happen. Okay,
1: so thank you. Your next, uh, talk was extremely good. I haven't read the book, but if, if the book is half as well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I had
2: a question. is, is, is does the infant have a voice? No. Uh, or are, are, are the characters witnesses? The <coughs> infant. Yes. I mean, I did. I did make the decision and it just felt too presumptuous mm-hmm. to, uh-huh. for for well, certainly the, the well for two reasons. One, I felt it would be presumptuous for Christ to speak in the story. But the other other thing about this of course, is it's about the birth of a child and children cannot speak. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, a a theological idea at the heart of the book is the idea that, and I, I don't unpack this in this language, this is just the theological ideas that were in my head that I hope are implicit in the book, is the idea that the incarnation is God speaking to us in the only language that we understand. And the only language that we understand is the language of another human life. So that's the language that God speaks in, no, not, not, not English as we're speaking to each other, but the language of a life. So God, you know of course that is the great declaration of course the gently previous question of course there is also Johns custom, which doesn't tell the story but in many ways it's probably, biblically, it's the ideas in John's Gospel that most motivate the story. So the Word was made flesh. God's Word spoke in the language of flesh. Um, And therefore, the fact that God is emptied of God, of what it is to be God, in order to to know what it is to be flesh. And to be flesh in a a child is to be one who doesn't have a word. I think it's interesting in in Christian art that the two most compelling uh, images of Christ in art are the Christ child in the arms of his mother and the crucified man on the cross. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, what you're looking at is someone who is helpless and powerless, Mm -hmm. and to a very large extent, even on the cross, voiceless. Uh, That therefore God communicates his love and purposes to us in the language of a life. Um, And therefore, from that point of view, the Christ child wasn't going to speak, he was only going to scream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: You, so it sounds a bit different,
2: but um, I was interested. In you said that Joseph was quite a lot older than Mary. Do you know that? <coughs> well, no, no. Well, uh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. But, um, uh, um, yeah. But, um, and certainly that's part of the tradition. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, you just, um, You said something when you were talking about the environment that's dark. And, and it's called cool, walking backwards to Christmas. It's like a Christmas story. And um, is there anything you think that will be of help to people for whom Christmas did become very dark? Some people experience lots of Christmas. And I was actually worried twice at Christmas, but my parents died at Christmas. My father died in the middle of Christmas Day. And yeah. I was wondering if there was anything kind in of your books that might be comfort to people who have experienced darkness or
2: whether it's a story of just perpetual joy? Um, well, I'd like to think the answer is yes. And I'm, I'm certainly very conscious that Christmas is a difficult time for many people. <coughs> um, it, it, it is the time of the year where more marriages break up at Christmas than any other time of the year. Because there's, there's shocking statistics about, um, about all of this. But um, uh, so, I am, I am conscious of that. Um, the, the book is, is trying to tell the story, and the story has elements of darkness within it, so it's, it's trying to faithfully look at those. Whether that would bring someone any solace, I simply would be presumptuous of me to say. Mm-hmm. But I think what you would get from this telling of the story... Well, sometimes you see the, you see the story, and you're, you could be forgiven for thinking... The a stable is much the nicest place one could possibly imagine to have a baby. Um, and, uh, and of course, as soon as you start to think about it, you think, well, no, that, that can't possibly be true. It must have been terrifying. Um, must have been terrifying. Um, a, a, a young woman, far from home, uh, must have been an, an appalling set of circumstances. Um, and although we imagine a stable, when we think of the birth of Christ, the scriptures don't really talk about a stable. Um, it's probably more likely it was some kind of could have been a cave, could have been some sort of outhouse. Um, it was not a nice place to have a baby. So the book doesn't duck from exploring that. Um, you know, another, I mean, another, if you want another sermon, I'm very, very good with my sermon ideas. Another sermon, another sermon idea is, what did they do with the centre? <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> a, uh, it's, it's a, a relic, sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I don't actually talk about the centre in the book, but, uh, um, but it's an interesting question. Are we talking about I'm talking about a real birth, or are we talking about you know, some strange, disney version of Earth? birth? Um, if it's a real birth, then the waters did break, there was a sense to be dealt with. Um, that these are real things. So my hope would be that for those people for whom Christmas is a difficult time, um, they would read the book and being able to encounter the reality of the story and the characters in it. Mm-hmm. That's all I can say. Thank you. Maybe here and then.
1: How much of yourself
2: did you find in the
1: characters?
2: Oh, well, mm-hmm. um, yeah. The, the question is how much of myself did I find in the characters? Well, lots. I, I think I kind of. I think, I really enjoyed writing the women, but it's was obviously hard to, hard to really empathise with the women. Uh, so the people who I think I probably related most to was, was probably Joseph and Herod, were the people. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, yeah. Um, well, yeah, yeah, very interesting, interesting man. So, uh, so yes, it, it, I think inevitably when you write, you, you write yourself, probably a lot more than you realise. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's, you kept on saying it's relativity um, story, something sort of we all know, but you've explained it in such a way that has made us think increasingly more. And in fact, I think your book is compelling reading for all of us who have your your talk, and you've shown us various aspects, however much we have learned about it from what you've said. I have too many would not have thought of. Coming from that part of the world where um, people sometimes rely on their parents or families to arrange certain things, you mentioned in passing that the two families are married for burying, and you said who you is.
2: What do need mean that? Yeah, well, that, again, that's poetic license. I mean, you know, we 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 don't really know that for sure, but I, I imagine that that might well have been the okay. case. And again, I rather like the idea that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because we, um, it's very easy to be negative about some of those cultures and traditions that are very alien very, very to me. But I just wondered whether that might have been the case. in the back?
1: A... No, okay. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, thank you very much for the talk, Bishop. You linked the Feast of the Innocents on December the 28th with the massacres of the Caliphate in Midlands, the so-called Caliphate. Did you um, link that uh, feast with the 185,000 uh, unborn babies killed in this country under the terms of the Abortion Act, or did political correctness kick in for you? The-
2: Oh well, well neither. I mean the, the book the book doesn't make any the book doesn't make any any link at all. Um, the, the, the book simply tells the story. So I leave <coughs> to make the links themselves, but I was simply acknowledging that as I was writing bits of the story, its its contemporary relevance was very clear to me. But the book the book deliberately avoids making any connections with anything else other than the story itself. Um, so I leave people to make those imaginative connections themselves. And one more. Um, write in the back, please.
1: Hello, um, thank you. And I was extremely delighted by the fact that the book came out of um, an image, a visual image, so that was very exciting. I just wonder, before you got to the end of writing it, if there are other characters Whose view of the Christmas story you would like to explore that just ran out of time or went out of
2: time. but I I'm still I'm still not sure whether I should have included a chapter on Zechariah. Okay. Um, uh, and I'm slightly yeah uh would quite like to go back and, and do Zechariah. Is it, the husband of Elizabeth who was a priest. And he was struck down. And I sort of tell a bit of Zechariah's story through Elizabeth, but but I did that there were various kind of narrative reasons why it didn't work with the flow that I'd got through the book. And would have involved to write Zechariah in would have involved some unpicking of some earlier bits. And in the end, I sat and thought about it for a long while and decided against it. But I'm now wondering whether whether that would have been good. Because What would have been interesting about Zechariah's voice was that he was a priest. His job um, was taking services and doing the things that we do. And I think what interested me about him was, I think anyone whose job is a priest then you're in grave spiritual danger if your job is a priest. Mm-hmm. Because you spend an unhealthy amount of time in church. And it's not good for you. Um, <laughs> and, and I think I would have quite enjoyed, um, as it was speaking through his voice, and exploring you know, the great danger for anyone who's a professional religious person, that you spend a lot of time in church, you say a lot of prayers, you lead a lot of worship, but actually, your own intimacy with God, your own ability to see God, is, is it can often be diminished by all by that professional religion. Um, and I, I'm very alert to that danger in myself. It doesn't mean to say I'll be saved from it, but I'm alert to it. Uh, so I, I, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, well, that would have been quite a good chapter. But anyway, I've missed the boat. So he's the, there may be others, but he's the one who particularly springs to mind. And also, I didn't. The the first chapter is Anna not sitting in. And I thought, should I do both? I mean, they're both present uh, in the biblical narrative. I thought, should I do both? But decided, no, let's get into the story. And I think I chose, going back to David's first question, I think I chose Anna. One, because I was interested in the female voices and and letting them speak. But also we know less about Anna. Um, So uh, there's more freedom there to, to, to write into it
1: and actually if you read it you'll see that through Andy also told something of Simeon's story yeah yeah Simeon
2: does as, in, as <coughs> a
1: bride they did, they did feature but yeah. well, thank you for giving his idea of the next book <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, thank you very much indeed Stephen for speaking to us so one of the challenges I think as with the Zechariah mm-hmm. is what can we do in terms of taking this away for ourselves and not only reading the book engaging with it in all sorts of ways and everything that Stephen said I would endorse from having read it through. But also the challenge at how we might think our way into biblical stories that are familiar to us with a different start and a different kind of understanding. The book is for sale at the front. Angela will be coming in a minute and having us with that. And Stephen will sign copies. You will sign (laughs) copies? Anyway, there will be no Sunday next month. The next one will be on the 1st of February when Peter Selby will be talking about his new book on an eyeball unmasked a faith perspective on money. And we we'll hope he'll be able to join us again. But will you please join us in thanking very much, Steve, for coming with us.